0: Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate
1: portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of your favorite real estate podcast, the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Nick Hill. I'm joined today and every day by my good friend, realtor extraordinaire and investor, Daniel Foch, Dan. What a time to be alive, man! A lot of crazy stuff going on this week. How oh you doing? man,
0: I, I mean, it's a good thing that the media and the Bank of Canada and the governments are keeping us busy, and they have lots for us to talk about right now. It's actually been an exceptional time to be in the second quarter of running a real estate podcast for Canadians, because there's no shortage of news for us to cover. So, a couple of little talking points. I just saw a couple of. Toronto deals come in across my desk at over a four cap on the listing side. I saw a 9.3% Ooh. cap rate deal in Owen Sound, although it does have a Airbnb in it, which is doing a lot of the heavy lifting. Twitter seems to be mm. waging war on on GTA realtors. So, I mean, it's an interesting time out there. <laughs>
1: Listen, I was never a big Twitter guy, but I've been obviously spending more and more time on there because you are very active and very impressive on Twitter for anyone who doesn't follow Dan on Twitter. It's worth it to honestly make an account just to go follow him. I basically only retweet his stuff and <laughs> along with other great people. But I'll tell you right now, there's some bullies on Twitter and, and I'll tell you realtors, some poor realtors are not having a good time with it.
0: Yeah, it's a rough go for sure people are like, why aren't you engaged in all this stuff? But I kind of just like, I think Dave Chappelle said it. He's like, yeah, some people drag me on Twitter. And who gives a F because Twitter's not a real place. And like, I mean, that's how I feel, honestly, at the end of the (laughs) day here, right? Like, So basically, myself and a couple of other realtors, Canadian realtors put out a course for realtors, and it was not exceptionally well received by the community. It was like, oh, this is such a late cycle sign, a bunch of like Producing realtors are are selling courses or whatever, but regardless, I thought it was it was a pretty funny thing and worth mentioning, anyways. So there's a couple of other cool news tidbits on Twitter as well. I think was it Ethelstan who shared that thing that you were going to mention about GTA precon right now, like the pre-construction markets, yeah, a little bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, before we move on to that, it, it is funny. Not everyone loves making fun of realtors. It's, it's gotten, it's become too easy in the last little while. So without jumping too much on the bandwagon, you know, you and the other realtors that you have put that course together with, I'd like to think you stand out from the pack a little bit. You guys are all incredible at what you do in, in different capacities, different skill sets. It is a little bit funny, the course, you there know, is, that's, sure. uh, every, everyone chirps that kind of stuff. So, you know, it is what it is. However, if there were a group of people to do it, I think that's a good group. So. Go check that out, everyone.
0: Yeah. What's the the quote? You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become a realtor selling courses. <laughs> is that what <laughs> it is? I don't know. I mean, whatever, man. Like it's capitalism. That's, and that is I the thought, exact
1: quote, I believe. Yeah.
0: I, yeah. That's Bane from uh, The Dark Knight. I, I mean, it's capitalism. And also like I thought that it would actually have a, a decent impact on like, I mean, uh, we can help other realtors be good at their job so that there is less collateral damage from the profession. But I guess it was received a little bit differently. Anyway, what's going on with precon?
1: Yeah, well, hopefully a bunch of agents can take that course and figure out how to sell some more pre-con because it is slow right now. And I mean, really slow. Only 27 units sold in downtown in the downtown core out of about 1300 available units in the month of September and only 289 units sold over about 10,000 available units in the GTA in the month of September. So this is crazy. And I mean, we were at an event the other day, great event hosted by Rare Real Estate, They had a panel of top developers there and those developers were saying over the last several years, they would list a project and they would sell out 70 to 80%, if not fully on launch. And I guess people in the GTA or in the Toronto space, that just had become the new norm. But these developers are saying, if you go to New York, Chicago, Miami, any of their counterpart developers there are shocked to hear that. That does not happen there. You don't sell a building in in a day or two. So now that we've kind of seen this slowdown, and we're, I guess, joining the rest of the world with pre-con sales cycles, what do you think that says about pre-con and just the sales cycle in general right now, Dan?
0: Well, I think that we're just ending up with a realistic market here. This is a good market to be making real estate investments in and I'm not encouraging anybody to rush in like I think we got lots of time and you know you when you hear professionals like Warren Buffett talking about this stuff and in investing period not just real estate but why when there's blood in the streets or be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy I mean I think we got a pretty good spectrum of the greed and fear index of this year right you could see extreme greed in q1 of this year and you can see extreme fear heading into Q4 of this year. And so pay attention to this stuff because this is probably going to be – this probably will happen only twice in our lifetime where we'll see this and and this is our first opportunity to to capitalize on it if we haven't already. So that's kind of my major – takeaway, qualitative takeaway that listeners could get from sort of what's happening there. And I mean, you are seeing, I think there's a little bit of risk happening in the pre-con space with people trying to offload assignments and whatever. And I think we're mm-hmm. learning that yep. real estate is not a get rich quick scheme. That was like mm-hmm. the most get rich quick flipping the paper on something. We saw this in the nineties. They literally have the, go ask your parents, if you're a millennial, ask your parents about the speculation era of the of the early nineties or late eighties. People were paper flipping on single family detached homes in the suburban greater Toronto area. So, I mean, we're just completing a cycle here.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I just want to take it back to something you said, you know, you mentioned extremes on either side of things. Well, you and I joke that housing is Canada's national sport. Well, it looks like that's an extreme sport now. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. We just got to get that Red Bull sponsorship from Dave. Yeah, exactly. Dave, if you're listening, come on. The government of Ontario also introduced sweeping new legislation aimed at speeding up housing construction that will cut fees for affordable and rental projects and spur what they are nicely calling gentle density by allowing three units on any residential lot across the province. That's good news. Excellent. That's some good news.
0: Absolutely excellent news. I think this is functionally a – 100% increase in density on single-family homes. If you can, as of right, without any necessary changes to zoning, go and get a – you know basically put in your building permits and get a second unit in any building in the province, potentially a third one if you're adding a laneway suite or a detached ADU. This is excellent. And I think – it's funny. I mean, I wanted to mention it on this show because we kind of predicted it in that ode to adding a unit episode that we did (laughs) – this is where we're going to create value and the policy environment is reflecting that we weren't wrong that buying houses that make or buying homes in locations that make sense to add a unit is going to be a good investment thesis. It's just happening a lot faster, it's materializing a lot faster than I anticipated, which is cool. It's totally, a good thing. Yeah. Bank of Canada. I think that people are getting fatigue from hearing about the bank of Canada. And it's kind of just like, a, are we there yet? You know, like the kids in the back of the car, are like, <laughs> are we there yet? Yeah. Tiff. Is and, it over? Uh, yeah. And, If you have a realtor or mortgage broker that you follow on social media, I'm sure you've seen it. Everybody like, it's actually funny when this happens, I go on my TikTok for you page or whatever and it's like, just swipe through. It's like Bank of Canada, Bank of Canada, Bank of Canada, like, because I just don't watch the whole things. But anyway, 50 bips, we're expecting 75 by the end of the year. So there's probably a a 25 bip happening, but maybe in December, which the Bank of Canada apparently has never raised rates in December. I haven't been able to fact check that, but that's what I'm hearing. And so maybe we'll get our first ever Christmas present. From the Bank of Canada, which is 25 basis points. It really depends on what the Federal Reserve does between now and then. And that's probably all we're going to be talking about in regards to the 50 basis point hike from them, I think, because we're going to be jumping more into the monetary policy report.
1: Yeah. The Grinch Stole Christmas, great movie. The Bank of Canada Stole Christmas. I don't know how well that's going to do if they if they give us another, another rate hike in December. But before we go back into all that, I know we've got a bunch of new listeners recently. So thank you to anyone who's just started listening to the podcast. We just want to do a little refresher on what a central bank is, what they do, why they're getting so much attention and why TikTok, Instagram, and essentially anywhere you go, they're front and center.
0: Yeah. So I guess the question is, what is a central bank here? A central bank has been described as a lender of last resort in a lot of situations. So they're responsible for providing the nation's economy with funds when commercial banks can't cover a supply shortage of liquidity in the market. But they also have another primary goal, right, Nick?
1: Yeah, and that is to provide their country's currencies with price stability controlling inflation. So a central bank acts as the regulatory authority of a country's monetary policy and is the sole provider and printer of notes and coins that are in circulation. So this is great because we're going to analyze the monetary policy that was just released by the BOC.
0: Yeah, so a few things to remember. They carry out the nation's monetary policy and control the money supply. They are mandated with maintaining low inflation and keeping GDP growth steady. So they want to it's their responsibility to keep their finger on the pulse of the economy and make sure that it's healthy on a macro basis they influence interest rates and participate in open market operations to control the cost of borrowing and lending through other interest rates aren't their only tool they also do basically like quantitative easing so bond purchases from either businesses or governments to create liquidity in the market a lot of technical terms. Really, they control the money supply and the cost of capital, and they can also set the commercial bank's reserve ratio and act as a lender of last resort when necessary.
1: Yeah. So I mean, we've seen price stability essentially completely destroyed over the last (laughs) little while, and inflation is at 6.7% as of this month. So at least that's kind of what we're being told. It, It could be more.
0: Yeah. Well, I think Canadians higher, especially when you're looking at core and core has been exceptionally sticky on the way down. Inflation is the rate of increase in prices over a given period of time. We're going to talk a lot about that as we go through their monetary policy report, especially we talk about real estate here. And in a lot of cases as investors, housing, residential real estate investment is is one of the big topics that most beginner investors want to be getting into. And so we talk about inflation as a component, or sorry, housing as a component of inflation. Inflation is typically a broad measure, such as the overall increase in prices or the increase in cost of living in a country. The main cause of inflation can be grouped into three broad categories: demand pull, cost push inflation. So basically something costs more fuel as an example, and then the retailer marks up the groceries because it costs more. And then inflation expectations, so consumers in psychology around inflation.
1: Which I always find is the most interesting, right? It's like almost if the sentiment starts, does the economic follow? It's kind of that chicken or egg, We know, what makes it worse?
0: Yeah, it's so interesting because if you go on Wikipedia and look up the 1990s recession, and if you want a cool refresher on this, if you're just joining us for the first time, go to episode one. We did basically a – how real estate performs in a rising rate environment how real estate performs against recessions and in the 1990s recession the then bank of canada governor states and you can read this in the wikipedia that canadians have a higher inflation psychology than americans so that's a higher likelihood to spend money now in anticipation that goods will go up in value in the future so they're trying to front run those cost increases i just found that was interesting anyway do you want to just jump in here on on cpi
1: yeah, very interesting. So inflation is measured by the Bureau of Labor Statistics using what's called the Consumer Price Index or CPI. You've probably heard that before or heard us talk about it. And that is to measure the dollar's purchasing power. So the CPI is an index of prices for about 94,000 different commodities and services around 8,000 rental housing unit quotes and prices for airline fares, apparel, household goods, prescription drugs, used automobiles, postage, and more. Generally speaking, the Fed, the Federal Reserve, strives to maintain what it calls healthy inflation, which is around that 2% over the long term. So a rate of anything higher than 2% is considered high inflation. And then, of course, hyperinflation is an extreme case of that where we've seen in some other countries, some South American countries right now where inflation's up like 500%. I think we've seen it in Germany with some of the gas prices, but luckily, we haven't seen it at home just yet.
0: Yeah. Now that we have a refresher of the roles of central banks, I mean, you know, you were with the Bureau of Labor and Statistics at stateside state side and Canada's stats can who tracks CPI and then the Bank of Canada rather than the Federal Reserve who is controlling that monetary policy. We understand what they do here. And so rates are really the main weapon that they have against inflation. And banks around the world are using rates to go to battle within their economies and try and protect that inflation from perpetuating. And actually, before we jump on here with the order in which these banks have been doing that, Nick, I just want to mention, you know, like early on in the year, we were hearing inflation is transitory, inflation is transitory. And so one of the things that's worth looking up is the concept of a wage price spiral. Because what happens basically is earlier this year, I mean, I don't think inflation was transitory, but it was it was a more ignorable type of inflation because it's inflation in which they could they felt they could probably pull that back out of the economy. What happens is, and now all of a sudden, you hear Tiff Maccom come out in the summer saying to all of these companies, owners of businesses in Canada, totally crossing the line, breaking the the fourth wall in the in the studio per se and saying, don't raise wages, right? So now we're staring down the barrel of wage inflation. And now all of a sudden, they seem to be taking wage inflation seriously. Why is that? Well, because once you start paying people more, they have more money to spend. And it becomes this positive feedback loop where it creates inflation because you're paying people more. And so this wage price spiral is what they're trying to avoid. That's why they're So focused on driving employment down, getting people laid off. I'm sorry, it sucks, but, and to try and eliminate that wage inflation. Anyway, tell me which Commonwealth banks, especially, were leading the charge on raising these rates?
1: Yeah, there's a bit of a theme here and and great points, as always, Dan. So, first it was Australia. Then we saw the Bank of England and now the Bank of Canada have all hiked rates, but. They've actually hiked rates less than expected. So we mentioned, you know, we saw obviously a 0.5 hike this morning, increasing the benchmark interest rate from 3.25 to 3.75. This is better than the widely expected 0.75 that we thought, which would have risen the rate to 4%, right? Or, or, Or over 4%. So not bad. Yeah, for sure. I think it's interesting
0: to see the move. The, the capital and bond markets are, you know, along with a lot of the economists that I'm following, are where everybody was kind of bracing for 75 bips. But the idea was that a lot of it does depend on the Fed, and we see Fed funds rate hovering over four percent by the end of the year. So we knew we we're going to have 75 bips probably by the end of the year. But I think the Bank of Canada is sort of kind of trying to look a little bit more dovish and not be as brutalistic in their approach, maybe starting to back off whether or not they are feeling a risk of overshooting. But they're also paying very close attention to Canadian inflation expectations. So this begs the question, what's next? Do we see another 50 in December? Do we see 0.25? Do we see nothing? I don't believe we've ever seen a rate hike in December. I think I mentioned that. So maybe I'm thinking we're gonna get a Christmas present uh, of 25 bips, probably minimum. I don't know what you think.
1: Basically a lump of coal, come on. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. The other the other piece is that they released their monetary policy report. That to me is the bigger news. 50 bips, yeah, whatever. We all knew something was coming, right? It's you know, it's less than what we thought. But they also, on a semi-regular basis, published this monetary policy report. I think it's twice a year. And it's basically a report that explains what's going on in the economy, the metrics that they're using to decipher what's going on. And so what we've done is we've basically looked at that document and we've pulled out all the mentions of housing or real estate and the impact that they're having on inflation and the rates impact is having on housing. And we're going to talk about that today. So you can sound like you know what you're talking about when people ask you about the monetary policy report and why it is more important than the 50 basis point rate hike.
1: That's pretty nice of us, isn't it? Yeah. Cocktail party
0: economics, man. (laughs)
1: I also just want to say I love how it's either hawkish or dovish that the way that the Bank of Canada trends it's either you know it's not good or bad it's hawkish or dovish so I'm going to start here and read the quick overview now this is a broad overview to the entire monetary policy after that Dan and I are going to go back and forth and get into a bit more of the nitty-gritty stuff analyze some charts highly recommend anyone listening along go download this it's it's extensive but there's a lot of really good stuff in there and I'd love to see the data because I bet that this one is probably more downloaded and read than any other one they've had in the last several years. Yeah, maybe we should link it in
0: the show notes. It is, it's is—it's a great doc. It's its big, but uh, we're going to go through it pretty succinctly right now. So give us the overview on it, Nick.
1: Sure. Inflation around the world remains high and broad-based, despite falling commodity prices and evidence that supply challenges are gradually easing. In response, many central banks are rapidly increasing their policy rates. Global growth is slowing sharply due to the associated tightening of financial conditions worldwide, as well as the acute energy shortages, which we've talked about, and the ongoing uncertainty between Russia and the Ukraine. Global financial stresses have increased. The Bank of Canada has been raising its policy rate, its interest rate, to slow demand growth, anchor inflation expectations, and bring inflation down. Slower domestic and foreign demand, lower commodity prices, and fading impact of global supply distributions or disruptions will reduce price pressures over the projected horizon. Inflation is expected to return to 1% to 3% control range by the end of 2023 and to the 2% target rate by the end of 2024.
0: Yeah. So from my perspective, I mean that alone is giving you like, I mean, people are like, oh, yeah, this is going to be quick. I mean, look, if they're not going to be bringing rates down until we start seeing inflation coming down. I said that very early on in an episode, right? I mean, maybe if we're in a brutal recession and demand destruction is exceptionally apparent, but by its very nature, they're kind of forced to overshoot this in this position, have a hard landing, and then we kind of drop rates to recover out of it. But- to expect that this is going to be a very quick and painless process is unfortunately a little bit myopic. And so, 50 bips, from my perspective, isn't the story here. You know, the rate hype seems to be fading into apathy and boredom and predictability. And it's like, are we there yet kind of mentality? To me, the story is that monetary policy report. And there's a couple of charts that we're going to go through. Rates are creating shelter inflation and major declines in spending on residential investment. Residential investment is 10% – 10 to 13% of our GDP and it accounts for a lot of growth in our GDP. And so if the GDP is contracting, that's when you're in a recession. If the GDP is going down for two consecutive quarters, that's when you hear the R words start being thrown around. And we know England just entered into a recession. So two charts that I just mentioned create the shelter inflation – and residential investment are charts 15 and 3A. We'll mention them a little bit more, but Nick, first mention of housing is on page nine. Do you want to read that one to me?
1: Since the July report, the bank's non-energy commodity price index has, been, has declined by roughly 5%. The largest drop was in forestry prices due to slowing housing activity in North America, Agricultural prices have eased as a number of regions have reported bumper harvest and war-related disruptions have had a smaller effect than they first projected. And we look to page 10. Housing activity has fallen sharply from the exceptional peak recorded earlier this year. Household spending on goods is slowing and firms plan for investing and hiring are softening as well.
0: Yeah, then it goes on to say, over the projection, the weaker Canadian dollar is expected to offset some of the impact on exports coming from slower foreign demand. And this is sort of the first – I thought we'd eventually hear about a weak Canadian dollar almost stimulating foreign demand, foreign direct investment, even though we just saw Doug Ford increase the non-resident speculation tax to 25%. And we also have a foreign buyers, a foreign ownership ban on real estate from the Liberal government nationally starting in January of this year. Moving on to page 11, they are forecasting two years of negative GDP growth from a contribution of housing. So in 2022, they're expecting, I think it was 0.9%. I rounded it up here to 1%. That's on the whole GDP. And then 2023, 0.6%. And then in 2024, it's basically going to be almost unchanged impact on GDP. So they have it at 0.2%. So 20 basis. Yeah, so
1: before we move on to page 12 there, it's funny because a recession technically is two negative consecutive GDP quarters. We've got eight of those with two years ahead of us, so.
0: They're expecting that it's two years of negative pull from the housing market on GDP. So basically the housing market's Uh, not going to be contributing to GDP for two years. Yeah, I guess I worded that one a little off there.
1: So essentially the recession is, exacerbated within the housing market.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is, yeah, yeah. I mean, we are going to see a very, very housing focused recession. And and look, I mean, you're feeling that even like the commentary that we were joking about earlier on Twitter, like the real estate profession is going to feel this more than homeowners. We have 50% contraction in volume already. I made a joke. It was actually a little bit of bad taste, to be honest with you. But when Tiff first made the statement about Uh-oh, job vacancies, <laughs> when Tiff first made the statement about job vacancies, I was like, don't worry, realtors will be coming in to fill those by the end of the year. Honestly, man, I mean, a lot of people, <laughs> look, it's a, it's a saturated profession and bad advice is is one of the things that really led us down this dark path that we're in right now. And I think a lot of people from the real estate profession are going to exit the, the career permanently. It's an oversaturated market. So anyway, let's get to page yeah. 12 here on Without- replacement costs. Sorry, yeah, yeah. go ahead if you want.
1: Yeah. Yeah, let's get back to it. Okay, so page 12 homeowners' replacement cost inflation, construction from the new housing price index peaked at 14% in the fall of 2021 as house prices boomed during the pandemic. It has since eased to about 8% as the housing market has slowed in response to higher interest rates.
0: Yeah, and that's where we see chart 3A shelter inflation is elevated. Mortgage interest line is basically skyrocketing. It's the green line on that chart. You can see it among other inflations that are kind of tapering off. It's jumping up a lot.
1: Yeah, and they actually go on to reference this more on on page 19. In the spring, rising mortgage rates contributed to a sharp slowing of housing resales. And by the middle of the year, economic activity started showing signs of moderation. Growth is estimated to have eased. By around one and a half percent in the third quarter, GDP growth is then projected to slow to between zero and a half percent through the end of 2022 and the first half of 2023. This is all available on table three and chart 14. And this suggests that a couple of quarters with growth slightly below zero is just as likely as a couple of quarters of growth with small positive growth. Yeah, I mean, I
0: I personally feel that's a little bit optimistic, but again, they're just continuing to reference this rising mortgage rates, pushing, and this is pushing into inflation, slowing of of housing resale. So commissions, because commissions are part of that residential investment portion of GDP, as well as home renovations. So jumping to page 20 here, starting in the second half of 2023, GDP growth picks up as the effect of interest rate increase subsides and potential output recovers. Robust immigration also supports a pickup in housing demand in 2024. Notice they didn't say that because we know that immigration demand lags because it takes people a while to economize, have savings, decide where they want to live. Quarterly growth in exports increases following a resumption of economic growth in the United States. So again, we're talking about our dependence on America here for our own economic growth. Later on the page, they say household spending is expected to contract modestly in the fourth quarter of 2022 and through the first half of 2023, higher interest rates weigh on household spending. And there's a chart there, chart 15, with housing and big ticket items being the most affected. Decreasing house prices, financial wealth, and consumer confidence also restrain household spending. So basically negative wealth effect, right? People have less money, they're spending more money on capital costs, and they can't spend that money elsewhere, and they're not investing. You're competing with fewer investors as a real estate investor, so it is good timing, right? This is why house prices are not climbing like crazy. Next line says, borrowing costs have risen sharply. The costs for those taking on a new mortgage are up markedly, and they actually do a cool graphic on variable versus fixed, which we're gonna get to, and the tightness of that spread right now. Households renewing an existing mortgage are facing a larger increase than has been experienced during any tightening cycle over the past 30 years. That's a huge gap. Yeah, I know. That's a cool stat. That's a scary stat. For example, a homeowner who signed a five-year fixed rate mortgage in October 2017 would now be faced with a mortgage rate that is one and a half to two percentage points higher at renewal.
1: Yeah. Then on page 22, chart 16, as mortgage rates rise, housing market activity contracts. I think we've you don't need a chart to figure that one yeah. out. I think we've seen that pretty clearly. Yeah,
0: but that's why like the writing was on the wall here. We knew rates were going up. We knew housing activity was going to contract. I don't know why anybody thought anything else was good, but at least now we're coming to terms with the reality. And then the, the inverse correlation is true as well. As rates come down, housing market activity, a credit dependent product goes back up. So pay attention
1: to that exactly. timing. And if you're not selling houses, again, we've already discussed, go make a course or start selling pre-con in the meantime. You're just twisting <laughs> just that knife here, I'm sorry, everyone. Let's talk about variable and fixed and the just some some general impacts that this rate hike is gonna have on the market. I know you want to get to that economist article that that you pulled here. So the 50-point policy rate hike, it'll raise the prime rate to 5.45 to 5.95 of course, impacting variable rate loans. So for about every 50 basis point increase, a homeowner with a variable rate mortgage can expect to pay, it's 28, but call it $30 for easy mass sake per $100,000 on your mortgage. So yes, all of your variable rate mortgages are going up.
0: And some people who already have a variable rate mortgage are also reaching their trigger rate. Today is going to be a big day for that as those increases continue. Once the entirety of a monthly mortgage payment, so trigger rates. We did an episode talking a lot about this, but basically this is when you're not paying principal anymore. You're only paying interest on your mortgage. The bank's going to call you and say, hey, we don't do mortgages that are interest only and we make our borrowers pay their houses off. So we got to change your mortgage up a little bit.
1: Essentially give us more money. Yeah. <laughs> so without without a risk of kind of repeating ourselves here too much, there's three episodes that we did go into a lot more detail on this, and that's episode twenty two fixed versus variable episode eighteen Bank of Canada hike puts pressure on variable rate mortgages and episode thirteen understanding your mortgage stress test and trigger rates. I feel like those are all super relevant and valuable to go back and listen to and Dan, you had mentioned the our our first episodes as well. you know it was funny back when we did that a few months ago it's still, it just gets more and more relevant as time goes on. So go back and listen to those ones, folks, if you haven't done so.
0: Yeah, for sure. Another thing to mention is because of rate holds on fixed rate mortgages, there are actually buyers in the market right now who are buying with, like, we're not even buying in a 5.5% fixed rate market yet. We're buying because of there's people who have rate holds for up to 120 days, is it, Nick?
1: Yeah. So yeah. 120 days is the longest you'll get from an A lender. You know, some of them are as low as 60 or 90 days, but 120 is, is fairly standard. So you're right, Dan. It's like kind of like the real estate market is almost trading in the past. Yeah,
0: basically. So since rates can be held up for 120 days, their buyers basically were buying with what were rates back then 120 days ago?
1: I don't have the exact chart in front of me, but my memory serves me correctly, they're probably within the mid threes to you know low fours, mid fours. Right. So I would say
0: I – mean, I could be wrong here and I'm not like a Super Bowl, right? But my thing is those buyers might actually have an incentive to buy today or a greater incentive to buy today because their capital cost is literally – 20 to 30 thousand dollars lower if they had to buy at a 5.5% rate today rather than the 3.5% rate hold which might, that's probably ambitious but let's just say somebody had that that's actually going to cost them 20 to 30 grand on the average canadian house price
1: you know, it's so funny. I know this isn't part of the notes here, but it, it just makes me think of those memes where they've got Prince Harry or whoever he is, or like the guy laying in a bed of money, and it's like anyone that locked in a a five year yeah. fixed, like especially the thirty six years ago. In the Anyways, States, man, if people were getting 30
0: years 30 year last fixed, year at one point two percent, like one point five two percent, if you got a thirty, you're laughing. You sell you're, that laughing. Mortgage. you're
1: laughing for 30 years. So that's
0: like a million dollars <laughs> over the course of a mortgage, like the savings and capital costs. And this is funny because it, it it's what makes real estate such a dynamic investment class, right? Because you're buying with credit and credit has a, a, its own cost. It's like you're playing hockey, but somebody has got the net strapped on their back and like they're skating around the rink and that
1: person <laughs> is Tiff Macklem. Uh, well, hopefully he's not that good of a skater. So, so, okay, so let's for- also remember how different interest rates are priced, right? So fixed rates are based off Government of Canada bond yields, whereas variable rates are based off of what the Bank of Canada wants to do essentially.
0: Yeah. So basically, the Bank of Canada overnight rate is what determines variables through the prime rate and then basically banks price variables based on their prime. So BOC is variable. Just think BOC equals variable. GOC, Government of Canada bonds equals fixed. So BOC variable, GOC fixed. So, you know, I mean, bond yields are, bond yields were bouncy today. They like kind of went up, blew off 20 bips and, but referencing that chart from the Bank of Canada, we saw that fixed versus variable spread starting to tighten. So one of the things, and I, and I was kind of giving some talking points to Johnny, our ghostwriter who was on CTV today. Not so secret yeah, guy anymore, so right? Eh? Pushing him out into the limelight there. We had a TV spot <laughs> that we were offered and neither Nick or I could do it. So we, we pushed Johnny to do it anyway. So one of the things is as we start seeing more and more people go into the fixed rate from the variable rate, that should take some of the volatility out of the market because the market becomes less sensitive to these, these rate hikes for better or worse because now the fixed and variable are so much closer. More and more people are going to be going into fixed rates and the interest cost is not as volatile as variable one might say and so that will take some of that volatility out of the buying power which takes some of the volatility out of the price. Yeah, it's not to say that the, the declines are going to stop. It's just going to say they will decline in a more predictable manner, I suppose. Sorry, what were you going to say there?
1: That's a little whim. We'll take it where we can get it. I was also going to say, you know, you're talking about the spread between fixed and variable. I want to talk about the, a little bit of the spread between A's and B's very quickly because, you know, I was, again, was just talking to Johnny uh, before this and, and a few other people that do a lot of stuff on the private side and the B side including us. And we haven't seen a ton of movement on there. You know, We haven't seen a lot of reaction from the private and B side yet. Again, this is the day of, we're, we're recording this the day of the announcement, but they have been holding. And, and I'll tell you right now, they haven't been rising like the A's have. And the delta between A and B are way smaller. Now, of course, B, you're always going to have those other fees, whether it's the 1% lender fee, 1% broker fee. So it'll be a little bit more expensive, but they're like within a half- point to a point of difference at this yeah. point. So again, for everyone listening here, that's an investor, you're going to have to go be at some point in your investing career. This might not be a bad time. Now, depending on where you are in your investing career, this might not be a bad time to to start to explore what a B is and, and private money and, and those options.
0: Yeah. And let's maybe talk about like kind of the primary advantages of a B, what increased amortization, more forgiving debt service coverage ratios, I think, right? More forgiving TDS and GDS ratios, I think. Like, I don't, is there anything else that I'm missing there?
1: Nope, that's all correct. I'd say another big thing is, you know, if you're self-employed or I'm saying variable income, not a variable rate or anything like that, but if you have variable income, which both Dan and I have. I know many of our clients do. Some people I was talking to this morning that have several of their own businesses. You know, They might have three or four different income streams and it's non-traditional. You're not just getting a, a paycheck every month. If you run your own business and you have variable income, B lenders are, are way friendlier to those types of people. Sweet. Yeah, it's a great summary. Yeah. And then again, I think B lenders are going to become increasingly
0: important unless we see OSFI kind of make some changes to amortizations. A lot of these renewals are going to have to get pushed to the B side because Bs are just for context, the A's are capped at, I guess, 30 year amortizations where you're seeing the B side doing 30, 40 year amortizations regularly. And they've been doing it for a long time because they're not regulated by Basel Three requirements or a bunch of other bank act or central bank Regulations. Last piece, I think you have this in the notes here. What does this mean for rent? I think this is interesting because I tweeted this out and Bridget commented on it because Bridget and I have this conversation all the time about renting versus owning. As interest rates go up, it becomes more and more compelling to rent because the sunk cost of owning a house goes up. Every time rates go up, the sunk cost, the interest rate cost that you're never going to get back because you're paying it to the bank, that goes up. And so that means that basically every time rates go up, it becomes more compelling to rent your home rather than own your home. And so I think we're going to start seeing that actually create more rental demand. We're seeing that materialize right now as it stands, right? We're seeing rental demand coming from the top end. People who are just like, you know what? This isn't the environment I want to buy a house in. And they have loads of cash. If they had a down, down payment saved up, right? And they can afford a monthly mortgage payment, which is higher than rent in a lot of cases, then they're the ones pulling the rental rates up super high from the top, not from the bottom end growth. It's not new household formation. And so that's why we're seeing rents accelerating. And I think we'll continue to honestly, like I know a lot of people are saying, oh, when people start losing their jobs, we'll see recoiling or whatever it is. But people who have a 20% down payment saved up on the average Canadian house. I don't know if they're going to care that much about losing their job if they're super liquid and we're planning to buy a house two months ago before they just chose to rent because the interest rates pushed it out of their affordability. So I don't know. What do you think, Nick?
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's tough, right? Because that takes us back to that buyer sentiment, that consumer confidence, which has a a very large effect on, on the Canadian mindset, right? I mean, I think most of the conversations that you and I have been having with clients, prospective clients, other industry professionals, there are a lot about that sentiment, right? I mean, we've heard the developer at the developer conference we were at yesterday, it's not that there's a shortage of money around. There's a ton of money. There might be more money now than ever, right? We're experiencing the greatest transfer of wealth currently. The government just pumped everyone's wallets full of free money. But now that things aren't going, not everyone's skipping through a field right now full of flowers. We're kind of waking up and smelling those flowers and being like, okay, well, now what do we do? So I think it's going to be a lot of people. I think the bold people right now are going to be the ones making moves and taking advantage of the opportunities presented currently. And I think as we go on over the next couple of quarters, as we now see the monetary policy has predicted, I think it's going to present more and more opportunity. And this whole notion of sitting on the sidelines, waiting until rents go or waiting until things start to change, I think a lot of those people are going to possibly miss the boat because Waiting for things to change, well, we all know it's it's everything's a lagging indicator. So when everyone starts to notice the change, it's too late. Yeah, well, it's just buy the rumor, sell the news, right?
0: I've had this discussion with a lot of people and it was actually Jim Chuang who mentioned it first that it kind of tipped me off to that. But I mentioned it on the podcast before. The closer you get to the bottom, the less downside risk there is because you're closer to the bottom and the more upside potential there is and the closer you get to the top, the more downside risk there is and less upside potential there is. And so it's a lot easier to get good deals, safer deals on the way down than on the way up. And look, I personally think we're going to see at least 10% more downside on the national house price in Canada, at least 10%. That's my economic outlook. And I think that prices probably won't start going up until 2024 at the earliest. That's my perspective. I'm not a forecaster, but those are my perspectives. And that's what I've formulated my investment thesis based on. I just closed on a house today, Nick, with you, which we should talk about. But I just closed on a house today. People are like, why are you buying if you think that there's more downside in the market? And here's here's the answer to the question. Now, number one is what I just mentioned. There's less downside risk than there has been for the past six months, for the past several years, actually, from my perspective. But number two is that's a cash flowing multiplex. So for the next two years while the market Hell is. Yeah, it is. And, so, and so for the next two years while the market is approaching the bottom, like, yeah, sure, maybe I could have saved 20 grand on the purchase price. Maybe. I mean, it wasn't like that much of an I'll make that 20 grand back in rent easily. Or we will. So you gotta think about it. this. It's all cost-benefit stuff. I mean, look, we're not expert market timers. I'm expert real estate investor. And I'm not even that, but I understand that income is also a component of what makes it a good investment. And if it's paying me the gains that I would have lost, there's no market timing element. And I'm not trying to push anybody into buying anything by any means, but don't let the macro, don't let things that you can't control give you analysis paralysis to the point where you're not doing the deal. There are good deals to be found. You just have to be willing to work hard to get them.
1: I love that. You know, I was gonna ask if you had any closing remarks for our listeners here, but that was it. Those were great. Thanks so much for listening to everybody. We hope you got a ton of value out of this one. I'd like to thank the Bank of Canada for raising rates again and consistently giving us something to talk about. And
0: Doug Ford for changing planning policy. I wanna to quickly touch on that deal that I mentioned earlier and I wanna I wanna read a review because I really like this. So let me do the deal. I'm gonna do the quick deal of the day and then I have I'm just gonna text you, or I'm gonna send you a link here, Nick, so you can read this one. It's on Chartable, but it comes from the Apple Podcasts. And then, but yeah, so the deal of the day I have here is 705 Third Avenue in Owen Sound. An agent sent me this on Instagram, and he was like, okay, "Is this right? Is this like a? I have this at like a 9.3 cap, and I was like, ah, it sounds wrong. But anyway, I plugged it into Landlord.io who's provided this awesome deal analyzer tool to all of our listeners. And I got into it. I mean, it's a fourplex and one of the units is an Airbnb. So that Airbnb is doing a lot of heavy lifting and it kind of gives you insight on how much they can do from a yield perspective. So I just thought that piece was interesting gross income is 81676 annually. Net operating income is $64,765. So cap rate is about 9.3%. Crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. And then we're seeing that in the market already. Are we
1: buying or what? I,
0: I mean, I'm, I'm compelled. I don't want to manage an Airbnb personally, but I like it otherwise.
1: Okay. Let's finish it off strong here with a lovely review. Excellent content relevant to Canadians in the Canadian market, five stars. Been listening to the podcast for a couple of weeks, and I was looking for the Canadian version of Bigger Pockets, and this podcast definitely is more relevant and speaks to Canadians on the Canadian side of things. Oh man, that feels great to hear!
0: This next line is the best.
1: Canada definitely has a special relationship with real estate, and Daniel and Nick have great insight as to what is happening and how to navigate.
0: I love that love the that. special relationship. Part. I mean, it's like when, you know, when somebody's like, oh, like, do you like my new shoes? And they're like horrible. You're like, those are, those are special or those are interesting. Right. Like, anyway, I mean, Canada does have a special relationship with housing. Thank you, Time Step 23, for the review. For those of you, we're doing this because we want you to leave a review. So please leave us a review. And by all means, shamelessly plug something that you want in the name of the review or within the review itself or ask us a question and we'll answer it on the podcast. Thanks a lot for listening. We love you all. The Canadian Real Estate investor is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Centre, license number 10317 and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate
1: broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.